On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil. Pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome back to Racing HQ on this Monday. Time now for Monday's Expert. And this week we've got a very special Monday's Expert guest with more than 2,000 career wins, 93 Group 1 wins, Hall of Famer and an icon of the 90s. It's great to welcome to the show Shane Dye. Good morning, Shane. Hi, Anthony. How are you, mate? Really well. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on, on Monday's Expert uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with bits and pieces of your career. There's so much I want to get through in half an hour. I'm not sure where to start. We'll try and go in chronological order. I know you were born into a racing family. Your, your father and grandfather were, were both jockeys. You were first apprentice to Dave O'Sullivan at Matamata and were champion New Zealand apprentice in 83 to 85. Tell our listeners a little bit about those early days in, in Matamata. Uh, how many winners did you need to have to outride your claim, for example? Well, in New Zealand, you had to ride six. You got four and a half kilos in New Zealand, and once you rode 60 winners, you went to um, zero. So it went down four and a half, three, one and a half, I think it was in those days. I suppose it's still the same. I don't know. Anyway, I outrode my claim in about 10 months. So uh, I did it pretty quickly. I only rode for two years in New Zealand before I actually came to Australia to ride full-time. Yeah. And how did that opportunity come to come to Australia for Vic Thompson? You were first based at Warwick Farm in about 1985. How did that come about, that opportunity? No, well, I actually come for uh, Brian Smith, who's training in Brisbane now. Um, of course, he trained Val Marino, who went for the Arc de Triumph, who was a great horse. And he was training at Wyong, and he moved his stables into Sydney, and he wanted a New Zealand rider, and I was still in the press. So he approached me, and my boss, Dave O'Sullivan, allowed me to go. Okay. And it then was you, an 85 game. And then you ended, up at, you ended up at Warwick Farm eventually, though? Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I rode for most people in Sydney, actually, one time or another. Mm. Um, the only one I really didn't ride for was Bart Cummings, although he asked me numerous times, but it was just that I had a great association with Tommy and Gay and, you know, Bobby Thompson and Rogie and I had so many I was riding for and then Clary I'd ride for out at, out at uh, Warwick Farm. So I couldn't base myself with everyone. So um, um, I did what I could and um, I think um, I ended up doing pretty well. How were you first received by the local Sydney jockeys when you arrived um, all right, good. I, I made a lot of friends, as you do when you're riding. Um, see, when I arrived, everyone had stable jockeys. Um, so, like, um, uh, Brian Mayfield-Smith had Jimmy Casty, and then he had Johnny Duggan and uh, Nigel Tyler. Tommy Smith had, of course, Mick Dittman as his number one jockey, and Neville Begg, who was very big in those days, had Ronnie Quinton, and just everyone had their jockeys. So... Um, it, it was totally different to how it is now. Mm. Did it take you a couple of years to establish yourself in Sydney? I know around 1989, that was a real breakout season for you, but you'd been in Sydney sort of three or four years leading up to that point. Did it take you a little while to establish yourself, Shane? No, not at all. No? As soon as I got here, I did. I was 18 when I come in. The AJ, you had to be 21 to get a jockey's licence, and the AJC luckily gave me a jockey's licence. 
So I was an apprentice when I was 18. I was a jockey. And my first season here when I was riding for Brian Smith, I ended up running third on the jockey's premiership and um, as an 18, 19-year-old behind uh, Mick Dittman and Jimmy Casty, and that was in my first season here. So I got going pretty quick. 1989, I mentioned um, just on the record, just looking at the record books, that appears as though it was a real breakout season for you. Um, your first Melbourne Cup winner, yeah, no, it was. Um, um, that was on terrific. But what really got me going was I'd just done six months before that too. So, you know, that that was a really good six months off. It just made me look at races, do a lot of form, and I learned a lot from that six months. Mm. So sometimes getting time um, doesn't hinder it. It actually helps you in the long run, and that did. So I come back and I got going again pretty quickly. And... Um, um, Quartzer was very good for me winning the Golden Slipper and the Blue Diamond and uh, it just went on from there. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to Quartzer um, in a little bit. So, terrific. He was about a 30 to 1 chance in that Melbourne Cup. You beat Superimpose. It was track record time at the time and I think Kingston Rule broke the, the track record the following year, which, which still stands. He Correct. ran 12th in the McKinnon on the Saturday. Uh, he improved dramatically in a few days. Did you expect that from him on the Tuesday? Oh, definitely. He didn't improve at all. He went very well in the McKinnon. The McKinnon was only 2,000 metres. Mm. And in those days, most horses just went around for the... It's so funny how racing's changed in Australia. I remember that Bart Cummings always said you had to have 10,000 kilometres, you know, to win a Melbourne Cup. You've got to run on the Saturday. You must run on a Saturday and you must have 10,000 k's under your legs. And the English trainers changed all that. They do not run on a Saturday and they do not have 10,000 k's under their legs. Most of them don't run for three, four, five months, a lot of them. Mm. So racing's really changed. But in those days, the Bard era, you had to run on the Saturday. And listen, most Melbourne Cup horses went around in the McKinnon Stakes and just went round. Mm. And um, uh, a lot won. Don't worry about that. Like, um, I think Rogan Josh, he won, didn't he? He won the McKinnon. and then might have done, Cup. yeah. Yeah, uh, there's been plenty. Let's eloped it. Mm-hmm. She won the McKinnon, I think, and then uh, um, and then the Melbourne Cup, of course. Um, but he went round and he finished behind Empire Rose, and Empire Rose was not Empire White Rose didn't win the McKinnon, but she finished back in the field, and I was just behind her, and she was favourite for the Melbourne Cup on the Tuesday, and I come in and I said to Lee, if Empire Rose is favourite, this horse has got a really good chance because he went really well in the McKinnon. 1989 was also the, the start of your four golden slipper wins, Quartzer, Kenny Ladd, Terse and Burst. Plan O'Sullivan is the leader, moving up three and four deep as King Marauding, in between runners as Loving Cup, Clockers right off the track, Ken Fair waiting for a run and so too vertingly, Cookley said let's go on Clan O'Sullivan, he kicked away from Loving Cup, King Marauding trying hard and so too was Clocker, the only danger to Clan O'Sullivan is Loving Cup, Clan O'Sullivan in front passing the 200, Loving Cup starting to go, take ground of him near the post, in front Clan O'Sullivan and here comes Burst! Shane Dye is going to make it four in a row. And Shane Dye and Burst. Burst beat Clan O'Sullivan. That was David Morrow's call back in the day of Burst winning the 92 Golden Slipper. What are your memories of, of not only Burst, but that era of Golden Slippers back in the late 80s, early 90s, Shane? Um, um, Burst, she was a funny um, filly. She was very temperamental. Um, she did a fantastic job as a two-year-old, but that was her go, being a two-year-old, because she was so tough. 
and she was developed as a two-year-old and she was just stronger than the rest of them. And of course, she, I think, is the only or first filly to win the Triple Crown, which is the size and the champagne. Um, she dumped me at Newcastle and gave me three fractured vertebrae, but I still rode her in the um, Golden Slipper, of course. She was just too tough and um, she didn't jump that well that day and it was a bit of a wet track and she got back a bit, but I got a very good run but what won the race was at the 600 meters they went very fast there were four leaders that year and they all went and at the 600 i was going to go around them and if i had off she wouldn't have won and then i yeah, decided in a split second to come back in and cut the corner and that's what won the race saving the ground and cutting the corner and terse the year before i think terse won the triple crown that year as well in 91 Terse did also clary was an amazing two-year-old trainer and knew how to keep them up Mm. And he just seemed to have them right at the right time. And uh, he was a very, very good two-year-old trainer. Um, he's the best two-year-old over road to us. Uh, he could quicken in a race. Uh, he was outstanding. Unfortunately, he nearly died after the Mooney Valley Stakes as a three-year-old. And he was never the same. Mm. He'd come back as a three-year-old outstanding. He won the Ascot Vale Stakes, which is the Coolmore now, isn't it? I think they changed it to mm-hmm. the Coolmore Down Stakes. Straight, yep down the straight and I think he ran record time but after that um, when he nearly died and they nearly lost him he was never the same he, he never come back from it a few years after Terse you rode his son in counter and he probably should have won a, a golden slipper oh, he should have won for sure. yeah. he was probably one of the hardest horses ever to ride in counter he would shy at anything and uh, he was very temperamental he did not like the stick at all. You couldn't hit him. Although, funny, the the, the one day I did really hit him was in the um, Caulfield Guineas. He was on the wrong leg and he was gone at the half mile. He was third fence. He was never going to win that day. I don't know how he won. And it's the only time I really did get get, uh, get to him with the whip. And uh, he responded, but he never used to respond to the whip. And people think when I hit him, um, he ducked out. That's not correct. He saw my stick, and when he saw my stick, he ducked out. Like, I, I had to be so careful with him going to the start in a race or anything, you know. He was very temperamental. He was outstanding. Um, I won six group ones on him. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't race past the three-year-old, I don't think, of course. He was retired pretty young. He was retired, I think, after the George Ryder when he just got beat. He was yeah. going to run in the Doncaster, but he didn't. But um, he, he should have won the Triple Crown. He should have won the um, Golden Slipper. If I'd known more about him then, he would have won for sure. I wouldn't have pulled the stick. I just would have cruised up and rode him hands and heels. But I tried to make a good thing of it when he was going to go to the lead at the 100. And that cost him the race. He ended up winning the uh, other two legs of the Triple Crown uh, following that. So you're not wrong. He should have been a Triple Crown winner. Shane, one race that gets brought up year after year, um, the 92 Caulfield Cup, the end across. It was your first ride on him. I noticed last night doing some research, Jim Walker had ridden him in 17 of his 18 starts prior to that Caulfield Cup. Firstly, how did you get the ride? What happened to Jim in that year? No, they approached me. He'd come here and he'd got beat in Sydney and they wanted a change. Um, They rang me to ride him and my first ride on him was, of course, the Caulfield Cup. Um, um, It just goes on and on and on. There's been plenty of worse rides or whatever on that. Mate, the thing was I'd never ridden him and he was gone at the 1,000. 
But where I went on the track was the best part. But when I dug him at the thousand, when he got around the far bend at Happy Valley, because he was gone, he'd had a flat spot. He got going too soon on me and he got to the front too soon. Um, and if I'd known him, I wouldn't have dug him then. Um, going wide, that's irrelevant. I knew where the best part of the track was and that was the best part of the track. So he made up too much ground too quickly because I dug him and also he was on the better part of the track and that's why he got there too soon. Does he that... was an outstanding horse band across. Mm. Won many group ones, runs second in a Melbourne Cup. He won the McKinnon Stakes, yeah. and um, um, he was outstanding. He was Horse of the Year, 92-93. You won a McKinnon Stakes on him two weeks after that Caulfield Cup. Does it still sting, that criticism, Shane? Year after year, it keeps get, getting brought Mate, up. Mate, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I really couldn't. In the mid-'90s, you had a great association with one of my favourite horses. He was probably the, the horse of my era, and uh, you took out a Cox Plate in 95 on Octagonal. Station Hand has hit the front. Dane Wynn carried back through the field. Hampered badly. Station Hand in front. Here's Octagonal and Germ with a mighty run. Then getting through is on the inside. Mahogany. Mahogany rails up with Octagonal at the 200 metre marker. On the outside, Octagonal. Mahogany coming at him. Stride for stride now on the Cox Plate. Mahogany, Octagonal. Octagonal, Mahogany. Octagonal's got his nose in front. Octagonal wins the Cox Plate. Wins it ahead. Mahogany two lengths away. Third Station Hand. It gives me tingles, and I wasn't riding him. I was just a 12- or 13-year-old kid back then. Uh, what are your memories of, of that race in particular? But, you know, why it gives you tingles is because that's an era where there were real horses. Mm. We don't have that anymore. We don't have wait-for-age horses in Australia. They're gone, you know. In that era, the 80s, the, the 70s, go back to the 70s, even the 90s, you go to a Cox Plate, there's eight, ten good, great horses. Like... Cold Diesel won an Epson and then won a Caulfield Cup, and he couldn't get a start the following week back in 89, I think it was, in the Cox Plate. Now they'd be giving you a start and saying, please, please, you know. We're living in a different era now. We don't produce um, great horses here in Australia. Um, many. There's, of course, Animo's a great horse and other horses like that. But there's not that six and seven or eight of them racing at the same time. Or do you disagree? No, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, the year after that 96 Cox Plate when Octagonal was evidently not in his best form, he finished fourth or fifth. And there was four of them, Juggler, Falonte, All Our Mob. Um, those three come to mind. Uh, Falonte, yeah, that w- you're, you're exactly right what you're saying for sure. It's a different era. You, know, you go back, it's just it's, it's some of those eras. That, that, that my favourite Cox Plate was the year Superimposed come down the outside and won. Beat Let's Alope, Better Loosen Up, um, Slight Chance, uh, who had won six Group 1 races as a three-year-old and two-year-old, run third. But if you go through that era, Naturalism was in it. Rough Habit was in it. There's so many champions or superstar horses in that Cox Plate. That was... That was in 92, that Cox Plate. It was just incredible. You have a look at Cox Plates now. They don't get them. There's hardly anything in them. It's incredible how we haven't got the horses that we used to have um, racing. Um, I want to ask about uh, Octagonal and that ride in the Chipping Norton Stakes, uh, 97. That was probably one of your most well-remembered rides just talk us through yeah, that that day, Shane. Do, do, do you know the funny thing about that, though? 
Mm. See, to me, there's no difference between the Vandercross ride and that ride. Mm. It was just what I did in a race to win a race instinct. at the right time. It's instinct. Mm. And now, if he had not hit the line and stopped, would I have been crucified? Of course I would have. But the funny thing was, he was 8-1 to one or 9-1. to one. He wasn't even the first. There were six runners. He was fourth favourite or third favourite in the race. There was Falante in it. There was Juggler in it. And they were short. No one gave Octagonal a hope that day of winning. And I just did something that was instinct in the race. Not before the race. I had no clue in the world I was going to do that before I went out there. I just thought he'd be back last and run on and probably run third. But in that race, they were going that slow and Flonto was in front getting a very easy run. And also Juggler was up there. And he was just bolting, going half pace. And I just all of a sudden thought, I've got to go. And when I went, I went. I didn't... I did not hesitate. I kept going. I said, I've just got to go and not worry. And I, I rode him strongly at 600. I didn't like get up and around and eased up. I just thought I've got to make this a staying test. And it won the race. But there was no difference to that to me than Deander Cross. And that's the funny thing that people don't get. And they never will get. They won't understand that. He had a terrific autumn that year. Octagonally won the Chipping Norton, the Australian Cup. He won that Mercedes Classic. Um, that famous race, I think to this day, John Tapp still swears Arcady won the race. What did you think in that Mercedes Classic? Did you think he'd won that day? I wasn't sure, but I'll tell you when I was sure, when I heard the crowd scream, mm. and I was over at about the 1,500 metres pulling up, and I had no idea whether I'd won or not. And I'll never forget this to the day I die. This crowd let out the scream. As soon as they all screamed, I knew he had won. Right, it was a joyous scream. And up in the sky, there was a um, a plane that did the smoke, whatever you call them, yep. you know. And it had a big O in um, pink smoke go up all of a sudden. So that plane was up there waiting, and it put this big O. So I knew straight away then he had won. And, of course, the clerk of the course um, wanted an interview and uh, for the TV, and they told me they had won. It was an amazing day that day because Bob and Jack Ingham were coming down the race where the horse comes back in and they were high-fiving everyone and the crowd was just going berserk, mm. you know, like uh, they were so um, over overjoyed. It was incredible seeing these two billionaire superstars mixing with the crowd in this joyous moment. Octagonal was different because... Everyone had him down as a worker. Like, he never won easy. He tried his heart out, and you had to make him do it. And that's why it went so well for Darren and my Darren Beedman, you know, because Darren was a very strong jockey, and he made him win. Mm. Myself was the same and made him win. And the crowd just took to him because he did it like a, a, a war horse, you know, like he never won easy, but he always just got there. And people loved him. He was great for racing at that stage. That was perhaps when you were at your absolute peak, 96, 97, 97, 98. I was doing some research last night. In those two seasons, you rode 13 Group winners, Group 1 winners in each of those seasons. Now, Hugh Bowman at the height of Winks equaled that, but he never betted it. Uh, and you did it for two seasons in a row, 96, 97, 97, 98. Some of the, the great horses of that era I just wanted to ask you about quickly. We mentioned Encounter. You rode a Derby, uh, Derby winner, Ebony Grove. Yeah. Uh, Accomplice comes to mind as well. So many great horses in that era. Yeah, um, I, I rode them all, whether it be Let's Alight, Bone Crusher, whatever. 
Um, naturally, you can't ride them in every race. But I, I, the only one I wished I had, could have ridden, and I, I had a ridden, and I was just tied to other horses. And I got asked to ride him twice. I got asked to ride him in the Cox Plate when he won, and I got asked him to ride him in the um, Mercedes Classic when he won with Brian York, and that was um, Might and Power. Mm. And I just, I, I had commitments to other horses which I'd already taken before they asked me to ride him. So I wished I could have ridden him. He, he was a, he was a, his win in the Caulfield Cup when he won was unbelievable. Um, he was a great horse, Might and Power. But um, no, racing was really good to me. But you said my peak. When I left in 2000 to go to Hong Kong, I, I was riding 10. That year you said I rode 15. I also, uh, 13 group ones. I also rode two in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 15 between 15, two. was it? Yeah. But I rode 10. I was averaging 10 or 11 most years. And you've got to remember in those days we only had 60 to 66 Group one races now we're up to what 73, 74, 72 or something. Wow. So there's a good 10 to 15 percent more group one races now than there was in the um, 80s, 90s. Um, but when I left in 2000, I was riding the best two year old, which won the size and the champagne and ran third in the golden slipper, and that was a certified lad. Mm-hmm. I was riding the best three year old in Shogun Lodge, Mm -hmm. and I was riding the best weight for age horse, being um, Ty the Knot, of course, a superstar. He was an incredible horse, and he won 13 Group 1 races. So, you know, when I left, I was on top riding every good horse there was. You mentioned Ty the Knot. That was one horse I wanted to talk about. When you went to Hong Kong, Patrick Payne took over and won a few races on him at the back end of his career, but you won 13 races on him overall, I think nine at, at Group 1 level. Talk us about talk to us about Ty the Knot. He was just a freak. Well, he was, but the the thing that reminds me of Ty the Knot was he had a lovely owner, Sandy Tate, who was just a real gentleman, and he understood racing, and you could tell him things about the horse, and he understood it. Um, you had Guy training him, who was lovely, who's passed away, of course, now, and Guy was a thinker, and you had this beautiful horse called Ty the Knot, who was just a gentleman. And um, you didn't have to try and make him win a race. He did it on his own. Um, he was outstanding. He wasn't much good at uh, Flemington. He just couldn't get round Flemington. He probably should have won a Melbourne Cup one year when I dropped him out last. It's the only time he didn't hang with me. But he used to run off there all the time. I don't know why. He didn't do it at Caulfield, and he didn't do it at Manny Valley. But I think he won, what, five? Chipping Norton Stakes? Or four Chipping four? Nortons, yeah. Four? Yeah. How many Mercedes? Four? Uh, two four. Mercedes Classics, but I think he must have run second no, or third. No, 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 he won more than that. He won more than that. Oh, okay. I'll have to have a double check. Yeah, it might have been called the BMW. Okay. <laughs> they changed it that often. Um, but he definitely won more than that. He might have won four or three. Okay. Well, um, but, um, a couple of Sydney he, Cups as well. I won two. I won on him as a three-year-old, and I don't think a three-year-old had won for over 50 years mm. the Sydney Cup. He beat Doremus uh, that year, Melbourne Cup winner. He beat Doremus. I, I got beat in the um, derby the week before on him. He had every chance, but it was a wet track, and he wasn't hard enough fit and seasoned. He was a run short in the derby. If it was a good track, he would have probably won it. Mm-hmm. But when it was a wet track, it just made it a touch too hard for him, and he needed one more run. Um, so he went into the Sydney Cup at his peak fitness, and 
He was too good. I love Tyler Nutt. He was such a kind horse and a beautiful horse, beautiful chestnut. Shane, you had um, a couple of nicknames over the years. The human headline was one I read last night. And Billy Idol, where did Billy Idol come from? Who made that up? I don't know who it made up. One day I had white leather on and I was in the walking uh, in the jockey's <laughs> room. And they always had TVs in the jockey's room and it was a Saturday morning or whatever and there was music on and Billy Idol was singing with the white hair and everything. And yeah. Someone just said Billy Idol and it kind of stuck. I remember Ken Callender saying it back in the day on the Channel 9 days, so maybe Kenny made it stick. Yeah, oh, it got round all the boys. And actually, like, Mick Dippman always calls me Billy. Still. He always rings up and Billy. Yeah, lots of people do, actually. There you go. Yeah. Uh, towards the end of your career, you accepted an offer to ride in Hong Kong uh, in around the year 2000. Just talk us through the decision to go to Hong Kong at that stage. It wasn't at the end of my career. It was when I was in really probably at my peak. I was only 33 when I left. Um, I had enough of Sydney. Simple as that, you know. And uh, I went to Hong Kong and I loved Hong Kong. Hong Kong racing is fantastic. It's totally different to Australian racing. Um, and, um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great place, Hong Kong. You had 382 winners there over eight years, uh, seven Group 1s. A good horse you were associated with was Super Kid in that era? Yeah, um, I won a few races on him. Um, a few Group 1s or two Group 1s. I think you won four Group 1s on him. I don't know, two or three. Yeah, he was a good horse. Um, there's more racing in Hong Kong. When I first went to Hong Kong in 2000, they started racing in um, September, the first week in September, and it ended in the end of May. So you had all of June, July, August off three months. And also on a Wednesday night, there was only seven races, and there was less races on a Saturday. Now they have 10 or 11 on a Sunday, I should say. And on a Wednesday night, there's nine. So there's a lot more racing. And the season now ends mid-July. So they actually go an, an extra six weeks. Zach Purden's done an amazing job in Hong Kong. It's just incredible what he's done. I don't think people here appreciate it or understand what he's done there enough. He knocked Douglas White off and he knocked Joe Marrera off. And um, it's just been incredible what Zach's done. And, and these days, speaking of Hong Kong, you sort of dedicate a lot of your time to doing the form in Hong Kong and you're basically a pro punter these days with Hong Kong racing, aren't you? Yeah, more or less. I just um, uh, study Hong Kong and bet on Hong Kong and um, that's about it. I, I follow the Aussie racing because I'm back here now. I love it. You know, I love the carnivals, the big races. Um, I don't watch every day. There's just too much of it here. It's, it's non-stop. We all know that. But the, the carnivals I love, and um, I love good horses. Um, no, that's my life racing. Everyone knows that, and it, it's it's fantastic. Got a text here from a listener wanting to know if he can subscribe to your Hong Kong tips. Is yeah. that a possibility um, or not? No, no, I work by myself, and Fair I do enough. it. And, um, um, yeah, no, there's quite a few who do that. Yeah. Hong Kong's uh, interesting to bet on because they have very big pools, and you know that now because you're betting into them, mm. um, which creates better turnover. The bigger the pool, the more turnover there's going to be because computer teams get a true price, and um, it's 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 fantastic. And also, there's so many exotic bets. You can't bet on the exotics in Australia yet, but I've got no doubt that's going to come in soon. Mm. So there's a thing in Hong Kong which is called the Triple Trio, and it can get up to like you know, 10 million Aussie, no worries. 
and um, that's on three races in a row where there's um, you've got to get the trio, so the first three in any order, and that jackpots week in and week out. So I think it's only going to be a matter of time before Australians can bet into all those type of pools like that. And the six up, which is the last six winners, that generates big pools. And once you do, it'll be fantastic for Australian racing to, to follow and bet into them. Another thing I, I wanted to ask you about, and we're probably going to run out of time, but uh, you did a stint in Mauritius as well around 2009. I've spoken to a good friend of mine, Noel Callow, about his time in Mauritius as well, and he was he was treated like a rock star. I imagine it would have been similar for you. Just tell our listeners how much they embrace racing in Mauritius or how much they did at the time. Okay, so in Mauritius, it's totally different. Every week, races is like a Melbourne Cup. Mm. It's just the people. So the whole race course, there's roads all around the race course. They all get cut off and blocked. People, they always get five. Well, in my day when I was there, I'm not talking about now. I'm going back 10, 15 years ago. Um, the, the, it probably's changed now. And from what I've been told, it's changed. But in my day, the day before the races, there'd be five or 6,000 people at the race course betting because all the bookies would be at the races, at the, at the track, and they would open up and people would go and put bets on. And that's the day before. I couldn't go anywhere. Like if I went to track work in the morning, I would get stopped by police. I'd say I went, I used to go Tuesdays, Thursdays. I only rode track work three mornings a week and, or four, three, three to four mornings. And I'd get pulled over twice a week by police coming home for wow. tips. People <laughs> would follow me. I had to time my run at the lights well in the city going to the races because if I had to stop at the lights, you've got no idea how many people were waiting at the lights no way. to try and get to my car. And uh, it was just like that. It was it was crazy. It, it's it's quite incredible. Like, you, you can't, your car, people are chasing your car, hmm. trying to give you things. Crazy. Like, not money, but gifts like T-shirts and all that, you know, and trying to throw them in your car, tipsy, tipsy. I'm no, sorry, tipsy is in Hong Kong. Tip, tip, tip. Yeah. In Mauritius, yeah. Crazy. So, um, no, totally different. Um, you you are a rock star, but you're also a bigger rock star in Hong Kong jockeys are because that's their biggest sports. And uh, in Hong Kong, you're just a god in Hong Kong, a jock, you know. Uh, in 2014, uh, Shane, you were inducted into the Australian Racing Hall of Fame. A great honour. How did that make you feel at the time to sit along alongside some of the all-time legends of the sport? It's nice to be recognised. Um, it's fantastic. You know, it's good. Um, I'm not saying that. But um, it, it, racing changed for me when I had my fall mm. and I nearly died or should have died. 2006 and, in Hong Kong, that one? Yeah, 2006. It all changed. And people say, well, how did it change? I said, because I used to keep every article, um, and they're all numbered. I've sent everything home to my mum now. I don't have anything. I don't need anything. I don't have trophies, anything. One thing, I don't have in racing, which is me. I've never watched a video. I've never read a story on me since that fall. Fair enough. But before that fall... I used to collect everything. Every video is all numbered in boxes. Every scrapbook, I was up to 40 scrapbooks, all done perfectly. And sometimes I'd look at them, you know, and go back. Mm -hmm. After that fall, I've never kept one video or one story or read or looked. Is that because it just put things in perspective for you? It puts things in perspective, yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. And I spoke to a lot of people that should be dead 
and the not and they they all say the same your life changes like i'll go to a restaurant or somewhere and i see people arguing over small things yeah which in the big picture means nothing and i go oh my god just stop the big picture of life it doesn't matter you know what i mean yeah and and you know, people queuing up for things and they're complaining. I'm happy to stand there, you know. Well, so what? You know, and they're all complaining. It just changes your life so much. It's quite incredible, you know. Mm. Um, and for the better, not for the worst, for the better. Yep. So from, from that moment of that fall, racing, riding wasn't as important as it was before and other things were. Um, and for the better, I think, definitely. Yeah. So, so people say to me that that ruined your career and it was bad luck and everything like that and all bad things. I look at it as a, as a blessing and it was meant to happen and it happened for a reason and it was a good reason. So I don't look at negatives on things. I always try to find positives. That's a, a nice note to end our chat on, Shane. We're going to run out of time, but listen, thanks so much for being our special guest on Monday's Expert. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're a real um, icon of, of mine growing up in the in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, and it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much, Shane. Nice being on your show, Anthony. Good luck, mate, and everyone back at winner today.